Since today is the external solemnity of the feast of the Holy Apostles Peter and Paul, we'll consider the story of their martyrdoms. So we'll start by briefly acquainting ourselves with a few points about the life of St. Peter. St. Peter is the brother of St. Andrew the Apostle. He's a fisherman from Bethsaida. It's a town on the banks of Lake Tiberias. It's also the hometown of St. Philip the Apostle. Saints Peter and Andrew moved from Bethsaida to Capernaum to fish. One day, St. Andrew heard a fiery preacher by the name of St. John the Baptist point out Christ our Lord as being the true Lamb of God, and that inspired St. Andrew to spend the next day with our Lord. After just spending a short time in our Lord's company, St. Andrew was totally convinced that our Lord was the Redeemer, and so he went to fetch his brother, St. Peter, and tell him that he'd found the Messiah. Simon, which is St. Peter's real name before our Lord changed it, immediately believed his brother, St. Andrew, and went to meet and follow our Lord. Our Lord told Simon and St. Andrew to follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And as we heard in today's gospel, subsequently our Lord made St. Peter the first pope, the foundation of his church, the rock, which is what his name means. We all know about how he walked on the water, how he denied our Lord three times, and so forth. We all know the stories about St. Peter from Scripture. But besides all that, how many of us know anything more about him? After Pentecost, St. Peter went to Antioch, which is now in the extreme south of Turkey, about 12 miles from the Syrian border, and established the church there. He ruled the church there from the year 33 to the year 40. During this time, he traveled frequently to carry the faith into other lands. As tradition has it, and as he himself confirms in his first epistle, St. Peter also preached all over the parts of the Roman Empire, which we now know as Turkey. For example, he tells us he preached in Pontus, that's part of northeast Turkey by the Black Sea. He preached in Galatia, that's in central Turkey, that's where Ankara is. He preached in Bithynia, that's northwest Turkey, that's where the Nicaea is, where some 300 years later, he had the first council in 325, which is where we get the Nicene Creed that we'll sing shortly. He preached in Cappadocia. That's a region in central Turkey below Galatia and Pontus. And he preached in the Roman province of Asia, and that's southwest Turkey, before he turned on and went to Rome. We know that he lived an incredibly mortified life. St. Gregory Nazianzen reports that although St. Peter would eat whatever was placed in front of him, in general, his total diet consisted only of a small amount of bitter herbs, and that was it. St. Peter finally arrived in Rome around the year 40 and was there off and on for the next quarter century. In 51 AD, he returned to Jerusalem for the Council of the Apostles in which he decided that the Gentile converts didn't have to observe all the Jewish rules and ceremonial regulations. There's one interesting interaction that takes place between St. Peter and Paul after this, that we read about in Scripture. On his way back to Rome, St. Peter stopped in Antioch again. And when he was having a meal with some Gentile Catholics, some Jewish Catholics came in, at which point St. Peter started acting like a Jew again and excused himself from eating with the Gentile Catholics. Naturally enough, this didn't sit very well with the Gentile Catholics who felt slighted, and it definitely didn't sit well at all with St. Paul, who publicly rebuked St. Peter. As St. Paul says, quote, but when Cephas, Cephas or Kepha is the Aramaic word for rock or Peter. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Close quote. 
Why did St. Paul publicly rebuke his superior, St. Peter? Because St. Peter's behavior might lead people to believe that the Gentile Catholics were in an inferior position to the Jewish Catholics. Now, it's important to realize that St. Peter's behavior doesn't impact an infallibility at all. It doesn't have anything to do with it. He wasn't making any errors in teaching the faith. He was making an error in the way he was behaving. So it isn't a question of infallibility, but it's a question of prudence. St. Augustine comments on this occasion. He points out that both apostles, St. Peter and St. Paul, give great examples of virtue that we should study. On the one hand, St. Paul's charitable but fearless public rebuke of his superior is an example of selfless charity. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, St. Augustine says, quote, St. Peter sets as an example of a more wonderful and difficult virtue, for it is a much easier task for one to see what to reprehend in another and to put him in mind of a fault than for us to publicly acknowledge our own faults and to correct them. How heroic a virtue is it to be willing to be rebuked by another, by an inferior, and in the sight of all the world? This example of St. Peter is the most perfect pattern of virtue he could have set us because it, by it he teaches us to preserve charity by humility. Close quote, St. Augustine. Pope St. Gregory the Great also comments on this event, saying that St. Peter, quote, forgot his own dignity for fear of losing any degree of humility. He afterwards commended the epistles of St. Paul as full of wisdom, though we read in them this story, which seems derogatory to St. Peter's honor. But St. Peter, that lover of truth, rejoiced that everyone should know that he had been reproved and should believe that the reproof was just. Close quote, Pope St. Gregory the Great. So there's just a few details about St. Peter. Now, in order to, for us to understand the drama of his martyrdom, we need to briefly consider two other characters. We'll start with the first, Simon Magus. Now, who's Simon Magus? In chapter 8 of the Acts of the Apostles, St. Luke tells us about him. This will be cut and pasted for the sake of time. Quote, Philip went down to a city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the nation of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all gave heed to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is that power of God which is called great. And they gave heed to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, they were baptized. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs of great miracles performed, he was amazed. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. 
close quote, the inspired inerrant word of God. So Simon Magus is a magician from Samaria. And everyone knows the last character who happened to be ruling Rome at this time. That's Nero. Now, Nero is one of the all-time incredible monsters of history. He gives us some idea of what the Antichrist will be like. A thumbnail sketch here will give everyone some idea of the kind of man we're talking about. Nero was the son of his mom's first husband. Her second husband died under mysterious circumstances just after he had made out his will to her. Then in the year 48, she married her uncle, the Emperor Claudius, her third husband, who already had a son of his own. She manipulated her uncle, her husband, Claudius, to adopt Nero as his own and married Nero to Claudius' daughter. Then it seems that Nero's mom fed her husband a nice dish of mushrooms. He lingered a while, so he had to be poisoned another time. This time he died. As soon as the death of the Emperor Claudius was publicly known on October 13th, 54 AD, Nero appeared in public and was acclaimed as the new emperor at the ripe old age of 17. At first, the famous Stoic philosopher Seneca, who had been Nero's tutor, continued to advise and guide Nero, but as things got worse and worse, Seneca finally retired from public life. Speaking of Seneca, parenthetically, the great fathers and doctors of the church, St. Jerome and St. Augustine, both tell us that Seneca and St. Paul carried on a lengthy correspondence but unfortunately, all those letters have been lost. Back to Nero. To make a long and unbelievably disgusting story short, most of which we can't speak of from the pulpit or really anywhere, it's not safe. You're thankful it's written in Latin when you're reading it. At a pleasant dinner with family and friends, Nero poisoned his stepbrother. He had his wife smothered in a steam bath and married another woman. Later, he kicked her to death while she was pregnant and found another wife. He was also involved in a number of so-called marriages that, of the type that have recently grown popular in places like Massachusetts and California. And sometimes he was one and sometimes he was the other. As far as I know, that's the only time in history till now where these were publicly recognized as state marriages. Something to think about. Anyway, as time grew on, he grew tired of dear old mom, so he gave her poison three times, but none of it took. Then he had the ceiling of her bedroom rigged so it would cave in and crush her. That didn't work. So he invited his mom to a big banquet he was going to have, and he had her brought in a special ship that at a certain time it would sink, you know, on his command while she swam to shore, and that, so that didn't work either. So finally he just sent one of his men to beat her to death with a club. All this by the age of 21. Then after his mom died, he took a turn for the worse. I'm being serious. Okay, anyway... In 64 AD, according to the testimony of the pagan historians, including Tacitus and Suetonius, as well as the Catholic authors, Nero himself gave the order to set Rome on fire. During this terrible fire, thousands upon thousands died, and out of the 14 districts of Rome, three districts were entirely burnt and seven partially burnt. Now, Nero was conveniently out of town when the fire began, but when he heard that Rome was burning, he hurried there, and climbing to the top of a viewing tower, he wanted to see all these sea of flames engulfing Rome, uh, incinerating people. He didn't fiddle because they didn't have the fiddle yet, but instead played his lyre and sang about the fall of Troy. So he's singing songs up there. The fire raged for nearly a week and then bribed informers announced that Christians had set Rome on fire. Uh, then, as now, degenerate sinners are offended by the inflexible intolerance of Catholic morality. So Nero began a fierce persecution throughout the empire. In a typical Nero-type move, he'd have garden parties 
But remember, these are the days before electric lights. So after sunset, he'd have Catholics tied to stakes and then have pitch poured upon them and then set a fire. They'd be burnt alive in order to provide the appropriate lighting and atmosphere for his garden parties. There's another facet of Nero's character that needs to be understood. Besides fancying himself to be a great singer and a poet, more than anything else, he really desired to be the greatest sorcerer that ever lived. He spared no expenses in his attempt to become a master of the black arts. And this is where Simon Magus enters the story again. The same Simon Magus who had been rebuked by St. Peter in Samaria had since achieved great fame in Rome. St. Justin Martyr explains the situation in a book he sent to the emperor and Roman Senate in about 150 AD. Quote, And after the ascension of our Lord into heaven, the demons put forth certain men who said they were gods. One of them was Simon, a Samaritan of the village of Ghetto, who in the reign of Claudius Caesar performed in the imperial city some mighty acts of magic by the art of demons operating in him, and was considered a god, and as a god was honored by you with a statue, which was erected in the river Tiber between the two bridges, and bore this inscription in the Latin tongue, Simone Deo Sancto, that is, to Simon the holy god. And nearly all the Samaritans, and even a few of other nations, confess and worship him as the first god. Close quote, St. Justin Martyr. In his book Against the Heresies, that brilliant father of the church, St. Irenaeus, who's a disciple of St. Polycarp, who was himself a disciple of St. John the Apostle, described Simon Magus' career after he'd been rebuked by the apostles St. Peter and John in Samaria. Quote, Simon Magus set himself eagerly to contend against the apostles and applied himself with still greater zeal to the study of the whole magic art that he might the better bewilder and overpower multitudes of men. This man then was glorified by many as if he were a god, and he taught that it was he himself who appeared among the Jews as the son, but descended in Samaria as the father, while he came to the other nations in the character of the Holy Spirit. He represented himself, in a word, as being the loftiest of all powers, that is, the being who is the father over all. Close quote, St. Irenaeus, father of the church. Okay. So now the stage is set, both Saints Peter and Paul are in Rome. There's a persecution raging against the Catholics. A diabolical maniac is the emperor and longs to become a great sorcerer. Simon Magus has been chased out of the Middle East by the Apostle St. Peter, is now in Rome, and has become Nero's favorite sorcerer. According to a host of the Church Fathers, including St. Justin, St. Ambrose, St. Cyril of Jerusalem, and St. Augustine, the sorcerer Simon Magus in his satanic arrogance, had decided to imitate the ascension of our Lord, and so he told the emperor and the people that he would fly in the air. Even Dion Chrysostomus, a pagan author, states that for a long time Nero kept a magician in his court who promised to fly. And so it came to pass that Simon Magus announced that on a certain day he would fly in the air. In front of a great crowd, with Nero himself watching from his imperial booth, Simon Magus began to fly in the air by demonic power. But it didn't last. Why not? Because of the prayers of two men, Saints Peter and Paul. So by the aid of demons, Simon Magus had been flying around in there, but suddenly he came down hurtling to earth. The pagan author Suetonius describes the scene, quote, Scarcely had this Icarus begun to poise his flight than he fell close to Nero's lodge, which was bathed in his blood, close quote Suetonius. As one of the fathers sarcastically remarks, he that only moments before was flying like a bird could now not even walk like a man. His legs shattered, Simon Magus died a few days later, raging and impenitent. Some of the fathers say that the defeat of his favorite sorcerer stirred up Nero, Nero's anger even more. 
In any event, the persecution continued to rage, and so the faithful kept imploring St. Peter to flee Rome, to get out of town, and direct the church from exile. St. Ambrose says that although St. Peter would have preferred to stay in Rome with his people and suffer along with them, they finally coaxed him into taking flight. So St. Peter set down that great Roman road, the Appian Way, and just as he reached the gate leaving the city, he was stunned by a vision. What did he see? As St. Peter was leaving town, he ran into Christ our Lord, heading into town. Peter cried, Domine, quod vadis, Lord, where are you going? And Christ our Lord replied, Vado Romum ut iterum crucifigi. I go to Rome to be crucified again. St. Peter instantly understood our Lord and turned back to town to face his own martyrdom. There's a little church right there, a chapel called the Church of Domine Quodvatus. It means literally the Church of Lord, where are you going? Built on the site where tradition says that St. Peter had this vision of our Lord. So he goes back, he writes his second epistle, and alludes to this incident in 2 Peter 1.14 when he states that the laying away of this my tabernacle, by which he means his body, the laying away of this my tabernacle is at hand, according as our Lord Jesus Christ also hath signified to me. St. Peter is captured and kept in a dungeon in the Mamertine prison along with St. Paul. They're held from some eight months. During the time they converted the captains of their guards, Saints Prochessus and Martinian, along with 47 others. St. Prochessus and Martinian, we just commemorated them. They died on July 2nd. They're, they're commemorated on the visitations. They died a few days after uh, Saints Peter and Paul. On the 29th of June, 67 AD, the two great apostles were both drawn out of the dungeon. St. Peter was led outside the walls, the city walls, to the Vatican Hill, scourged, but before he was crucified, he begged his executioners not to place him upright on the cross, but upside down. As he told them, the servant should not be seen in the position once taken by the master. So St. Peter was crucified, nailed to the cross upside down, and died. On that same day, June 29, 67 AD, St. Paul was led out two miles along the Ostian Way to be executed, but because he was a Roman citizen, he wasn't going to be crucified. St. Clement seems to indicate that Nero himself was present at this execution. St. Paul knelt down, prayed, bandaged his own eyes, and awaited the sword. A soldier lopped off his head, and it bounced three times down this gentle hill. At each point where St. Paul's head bounced, a spring immediately began to flow, which is why it's now called Tre Fontane, the Three Fountains. There's now a Trappist monastery on this site with a church built on the site where St. Paul's martyrdom occurred. If you walk into the church and look in the back on the epistle side, there's a, a short marble column there, a little pillar. It's the chopping block across which St. Paul laid his neck. The church itself is level, but along the epistle side wall, there's a little, there's a, like an iron rail, and there's three altars, but they're going down. So if you've you got to go to the back corner, and they go down roughly following the gentle slope of what the ground originally would have been, and each one of those altars is built over a site where, where St. Paul's head had bounced and where the fountain sprung up. Several years ago, I was making a pilgrimage to that site, and I had an interesting conversation with a priest who was preparing to say the public mass. And he told me that the water from the three springs had continually run from the time of St. Paul's martyrdom until the 1950s. And I was astonished and kind of troubled by that, and I asked him, why do you suppose the springs dried up in the 1950s? And he said, we think it's because of the sins of men. Today, the heads of the two apostles are kept in civil reliquaries in the Basilica of St. John Lateran. St. Paul is buried directly under the main altar of the Basilica of St. Paul outside the walls. 
St. Peter's buried directly under the main altar in St. Peter's Basilica. If you visit the Vatican today and go up to the main altar and then move off to the left, you'll find a side altar where you're going to see a scene of his crucifixion. If you dropped a plumb bob down from that altar down to the ground, that would be where he's crucified. And if you notice where that is, then you go outside and you have to go around a Vatican garden. Look, on the outside of the basilica, there's a plate right, right at that point commemorating where St. Peter was crucified. And he's buried just a short way away. You can take a scavi tour by asking a Swiss guard how to sign up for it. And these are from the, they were secret excavations during Pius XII. So you're actually underneath St. Peter's Basilica. And, you know, you walk along with the floor above your head going up through an, uh, an ancient Roman cemetery. There's, there's different graffiti St. Peter's near here. And you finally come out to where St. Peter's tomb is, which is right exactly below the main altar. Today at Holy Mass, remember especially to thank God for the great examples of his saints, Peter and Paul. And then, inspired by the insistent request of Our Lady of Fatima, let's especially remember to pray for protection, for prudence, and for holiness for the 265th successor of St. Peter, our Holy Father the Pope, Benedict XVI.